You are listening to Gangland Wire, hosted by former Kansas City Police Intelligence Unit Detective Gary Jenkins. Well, welcome all you wiretappers out there. Don't forget to hit me up on the Venmo app at Gangland Wire and buy me a cup of coffee or shot in a beer. I'm coming to you all by myself today. You know, I usually have had Cam, our good friend Cam Robinson, or I'm interviewing some kind of an author. I want to take you back to January 7th, 1970. The Kansas City Chiefs were getting ready to play their second Super Bowl ever. The first one was against the Green Bay Packers. And the very first Super Bowl ever, we claim we have that claim to fame here. The second Super Bowl they played in, 1970, was going to be against the Minnesota Vikings. It was going to happen on January the 11th. That was only four days from this particular date. Uh, partisan spirits ran high in Kansas City. I remember those days myself. We were all huge Chiefs fans. I watched every game from start to end. Uh, went out to went out. I went out there quite a little bit too. Tickets weren't quite as uh, as expensive as they are now. And plus, I was uh, connected to somebody that had four season tickets that often didn't want to go, and I could always get at least one or two of those. Now, all the betters in Kansas City were laying thousands and thousands of dollars on a Chiefs victory. During the same time, an FBI agent's climbing a pole directly across the street from the trap or the uh, Italian American Social Club or the Northview Social Club or the Columbus Park Social Club, depending on when it was uh, referred to. He hooked up a couple of wires that led to a lease line that went right back into the headquarters of the FBI downtown. Now, inside that wire room at the same time at the FBI headquarters, there's a bunch of FBI agents gathering around uh, a tape player and uh, a set of headphones. They were all going to be taking turns listening to this wiretap. There was only one wire. They only had a couple of three people named on it. So you can only listen to a wiretap and record it if a named target is on the phone. So there was uh, Nick Savella, because he was the boss, there was uh, Tusa, Frankie Tusa, who was the manager of the social club, and he was a known gambler. There was um, uh, Dude Fontanello, who was one of the main bookies for Nick Savelle at the time. He was an old guy. He was This was like both those guys, Frank Tusa and, and Dude Fontanello. This was their last gasp. They, they never did anything again after this. Now, these, these agents got their cigarettes and their ashtrays and their snacks and their reading material, and they listen up, and they, they get the word, okay, it's live. So they wait for the first phone call, and finally, you know, phone call comes in. They listen a little bit, and you got to kind of listen to hear, get voices down and get somebody to identify themselves. And they already had heard Tuso on other wiretaps before, so they kind of knew what to expect. And, and he was the main one that answered the phone, so they got his voice down pretty quick. And they started hearing him scolding these underlings, these agents that were out there uh, taking bets. And then they started noticing that he was really getting concerned about how much money was going down on the Chiefs. So as we're getting closer the next couple, three days to January the 11th, they heard him call Nick Savell and report that they had $47,360 in bets that he needed to lay off in order to balance the books. Now, the mob does not like to bet. They want an equal amount of bets on both sides of any particular contest, whether it be a baseball game, a football game, or a fight or whatever. They earn their money by taking a 10% vig or lug from the losing bettors. 
Tusa calls Nick Savella and gets him started talking about this problem and trying to get him to give him directions on what to do. So Nick makes some statements that indicates that he's telling Tusa what to do. Tusa ended up getting the bets laid off, but this was enough to catch Nick Savella. He'd stayed off the phone really well until this situation came up, and it was such a last minute he, he should have run down there and, uh, and listened to Tusa, but he didn't. You know, was it uh, Anthony Accardo supposedly said uh, a, uh, a fish that never opens his mouth does not get caught? I don't know if he really said that or not, but it's a pretty good saying. Nick Savella should have remembered that saying. So the U.S. attorney will charge Nick with running a gambling enterprise because they had some phone calls from interstate. And that's really what this is about, is one of those phone calls made from interstate, or two or three of them made from an interstate better, really. And not from outside the outside the state very far, just across the state line into uh, Johnson County, Kansas, or Wyandotte County, Kansas. Anyhow, I would have just been across the state line, still within Kansas City, city limits, but just Kansas City, Kansas city limits, or Overland Park, Kansas city limits. Finally, on October 1970, a few months later, Bill Owsley and Lee Fossey, his partner, were able to arrest Nick Savella. Nobody had been able to serve, even serve any papers on him for 10 years, let alone being arrested. Took him in. He's got to post $5,000 bond. He's bitching and pissing and moaning to the judge that he ought to be released on his personal recognizance, and this was a double standard. He hadn't been arrested in, in a long, long time, and they didn't really have anything, but, you know, the bond stood, and, $5,000 bond wasn't too much for him to make. He just was that way, he bitched about everything. Nick Savella will never, ever plead guilty. He'll never give in to anything that the government wants to do. And in this particular case, it was uh, it was like seven or eight years later when he finally started serving a pretty short three-year sentence he got out of this. So over the next few months, FBI agents start subpoenaing better so that they'd picked up on the phone have him come in and testify in a grand jury. And there's one particularly large sports better named Saul Landy. He was a Jewish scrapyard owner over in Kansas City, Kansas. Now, he freely admitted that he'd placed the bets in question, and because he was calling from another state, he became a really important witness uh, against Nick Savella to solidify this interstate gambling case. There was another big better from up in Liberty, Missouri, but he was inside the state that testified his name was lester moore and he will come into play if you watch the movie brothers against brothers he was a confidant of carl sparrow another kind of mob underling never was really a made guy but he was part of this uh, dissident faction in the mob that 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 movie's about and and uh, Sparrows are supposed to kill him, and they don't get it done. That's one reason the uh, Savellas were mad at the Sparrows. Somebody else tries to kill Lester Moore. They took a case of dynamite and put it by his car, and it didn't go off. Lester Moore will end up dying a, a natural death in the end. But Saul Landy was the biggest problem, and as Nick talked around to his uh, cohorts about this, everybody knew that Saul Landy was a huge problem for Nick Savella if he testified in a negative way about Nick. We I don't know exactly how much he knew about Nick directly. 
I think he was going to be able, only going to be able to testify that he placed all these bets from Kansas to Missouri with this Frank Tusa, and then they would link Tusa from the wiretap to Nick Savella to bring him down. However, you know, the the mob doesn't really care much about a small better like this. I mean, he was a large better, but he was a, a small fish. He couldn't he couldn't link Nick Savella directly to the operation, so there was plenty of wiggle room. He was certainly was not threatening enough to necessitate Nick Savella giving an order to have him killed. Well, about the same time, much to uh, Savella's dismay, the U.S. Attorney's Office designated Kansas City as the Midwest Office for Organized Crime and Racketeering, which became known as the Strike Force. They, they developed a strike force in every city. They would take... Uh, their best associate U.S. attorneys in that office and make them members of the strike force in each federal agency, the FBI, the DEA, the ATF, the Treasury Agency, the Treasury, and the, uh, I remember now, the uh, Labor Department would assign certain agents, some of their better agents, to work directly with the strike force. Now, they appointed a really brilliant attorney who came out of uh, San Francisco. His name was Mike DeFeo, and he was a really good guy. I worked with him just a little bit. He was, a, he was a brainiac man, and I would not want Mike DeFeo after me, I'll tell you that. He was one smart dude and, and rigorous and, and took prosecutions uh, seriously and took them to the hilt. He would go on and, and get promoted on up the chain to uh, international organized crime with the U.S. Attorney's Office over the next few years. But he's, he's a man that heads this up. He had three other attorneys assigned to him and a small support staff. And they took over the Savella gambling investigation as their first case. This was not lost on the local mob and Nick Savella, and their fear increased exponentially. I, I got a feeling. I don't remember. I don't remember for sure, but I know that that the strike force struck fear in the heart of every one of those mobsters. Now, one man took some drastic action. There was a mob underling. He wasn't a made guy, but he was an underling. He owned a owned a corner gas station over on the east side. His name was Johnny Francovilia, and we'll call him Johnny Franks because everybody called him Johnny Franks. He knew from Scuttlebutt that one witness on the government's witness list against Nick Savella and Frank Tusa and Dude Fontanello was this scrapyard owner named Saul Landy. He was very wealthy, lived over in, in Kansas City, Missouri, in a really, really nice neighborhood, had a nice house. Now, it'll not ever be known for sure, but all supposition and informants would say that Johnny Franks just wanted to prove that he was a big man to Nick Savella, and he decided to eliminate this witness for Nick. November 1970, less a month after Nick Savella was arrested and released on bond, Johnny Franks called in an African-American associate named Thomas Jefferson Lee to his gas station at 10th and Hardesty. He offered him some money to take care of Saul Landy. Lee said he'd see what he could do and left. Shortly after that, Lee approaches four young African-American guys. Now, it'll turn out that one of them, uh, the, kind of the leader of this little crew, 25-year-old Ronnie Williams, had done other things for Johnny Francovilla before, so he was, he was a known quantity. Lee tells Ronnie Williams that, that Johnny Franks wants this guy taken care of, and offers him $2,000 and offers him 1000 bucks each for anybody else he recruits. So Ronnie Williams gets his cousin, Marquise Williams. And in turn, they offer 17-year-old Lee Johnson and a young guy named Earl Howard the opportunity to go kill this white guy and own the scrapyard business. 
They came up with a plan. They decided that they would rob the house or make it appear like it was a robbery. But they knew they were going after a witness because he was a witness against somebody big was what the underlings were told and, and what they were led to believe. Ronnie Williams was given the address of Landy's scrapyard by Thomas Jefferson Lee and Johnny Francovilla, and also a description. He had a, a tan Buick Riviera and kind of a little aside. He also gave him three marijuana joints to give to his, his underlings. They drove to the scrapyard and found the car, kind of sat back and watched, see if they could figure out what Saul Landy looked like. One of them went in to take a look and see what he looked like. They had been told that Landy lived in the 7400 block of Washington, which is, oh, it's about, no, actually it's about 40 blocks, 35 blocks, just directly south of me, real close to state line. So they made a few runs out there to 7400 block of Washington until finally they found that same brown Buick Riviera at a house. Later that night, Ronnie Williams told his cousin, Marquise Williams, and the two young guys, Lee Johnson and Earl Howard, that they, they needed to go do it that night. They all get together, drinking, smoking marijuana, getting ready. They made three trips out there to the Landy house. Each time they got there, they chickened out and left, or something scared them off, and they left. We don't know for sure. But on the fourth trip, they parked, and they entered through an unlocked back door. They found Landy and his wife in bed. They had guns. They terrorized them, pretending they were there to rob them. They kept demanding more money and more money, and Landy you know, said, this is all the money I got. One of the guys said to Landy's wife, uh, we're going to have to kill him. Do you want me to put a pillow over your head while we do that? And she, you know, how do you respond to that? She didn't respond at all, according to her testimony. One man did place a pillow over her head, and the other man took a pillow and put it over Landy's head and shot him twice in the head. They left her in the bed alive. They went all through the house, tearing up the house. They took all the cash they could find, a few hundred dollars and about $10,000 in jewelry. Frank Avilla told them to make it look like a robbery. After the detectives get there and they look at the crime scene, they will figure out that somebody did hold a pillow over Landry's head and shoot him through the pillow. So that's that's the kind of evidence that, that when you got a storyteller and he tells you something like that and then your physical evidence proves it out, why that, that makes his, his storytelling good because there's always questions about if somebody makes a deal, which is what happened in this deal. Ronnie Williams and Marquise Williams and this Lee Johnson, three of them all made deals and testified. Thomas Jefferson Lee will go ahead and cop a plea. He gets a life sentence. They're lucky since Lee didn't testify. Johnny Franks probably thought he was home free, but this Ronnie Williams had done other things for Johnny Franks. He was, like I said before, I think he was a known entity. As a matter of fact, he, he testified that Johnny Franks called him one night during the middle of this said, you know, you guys got to get this done. He also testified that he had done other things for Johnny Franks before, like put sticks of dynamite on people's porches, and then Johnny Franks will call him up and say, hey, there's somebody trying to kill you, but I can get it quashed for $2,000. Matter of fact, they had a, a businessman who Franks had done business with to testify that he did have that happen. He found some dynamite on his porch, Shortly thereafter, Johnny Franks approached him and claimed that he knew who did it, and for 2000 bucks he'd get it stopped. So that's how prosecutors implicated Johnny Franks. He'll get convicted, get a life sentence. Everybody appeals, it seemed like, but nobody really won their appeal. Now, I'm pretty sure they're all dead now. I get people 
asked me about, you know, blacks and organized crime and the mafia in Kansas City. And this is one time we know for sure that the Kansas City mafia involved some African-Americans in one of their crimes. Now, I, I particularly got these questions after Fargo did it, some episodes showing Chris Rock was one of them. I don't remember the first guy's real name or his fake name anyhow, but they were supposedly representatives of the Kansas City mob that went up to Fargo and and they, they like had command and control capability, it seemed to me like, of, of other mobsters that they brought up with them. But but believe me, that doesn't happen in real life. Mob guys got the same prejudices that about everybody else does, and they never included any ethnicity outside of, of their own. Uh, a few Jewish guys and a few white guys, or Packer Woods as we're called in Kansas City, but only people that they'd known and done stuff with their whole life. And and many times they would be married into some other Italian family. They would have some blood connection and deep roots in the, uh, in the Italian community before they'd ever bring them in. So that's the story of Johnny Francovilla. I thank you for listening and supporting Gangland Wire Crime Stories. If you want some more connection to the show, find my private Facebook group called Gangland Wire Crime Stories. I only admit podcast listeners. Have a public page, Twitter feed, and Instagram, all under Gangland Wire. Or you can email me at ganglandwire at gmail.com. As a lot of you know, I have a website, www.ganglandwire.com. On the shop page, you'll find a donate button to support the podcast. Now, I realize that some of you may be out of work because of this dang virus, and I don't want you to even think about donating. But for the rest of you guys, for $25 or more, I have different rewards, depending on how much you give me. Plus, another way to support my work is to go to Amazon and rent my documentaries, Gangland Wire and Brothers Against Brothers, The Savella Spiro War, or encourage your friends to do that. I have a book about the Las Vegas casino skimming investigation titled Leaving Vegas, How FBI Wiretaps Ended Mob Domination of Las Vegas Casinos. Now that's a mouthful. I don't know what I was thinking when I titled that book. If you get the Kindle version, you'll get links to hear the actual wiretaps. Finally, don't forget you can buy me a cup of coffee or a shot in a beer with your Venmo app at Gangland Wire. You know, recently I've started hosting some Zoom calls that are restricted to fans who have supported the podcast in some manner. Besides cash donations, some of you are helping by becoming editors on my Facebook pages and keeping them filled with fresh content. And if anybody wants to write short blog pieces, no more than 100 or 150 words, and attach relevant photos, you can send those to me and I'll put those up on the Facebook. I have folks already like Ken C. from Arizona and Basil T. from Dallas helping with that. And they have both been doing a great job. I really appreciate what you guys have done. Every Facebook page can use more and more accurate content. People out there are starved for good, accurate content. Let me know if you're interested. Time for my public service announcement. Right now, Gangland Wire is supporting PTSD treatment and recovery for veterans. If you're a vet and you think you may need help with PTSD, call 1-800-273-8255 and press 1. Or you can text at 838-255. The VA also has a website with lots of resources at www.ptsd.va.gov. Well, as we used to say, I'm 1042. Music provided by our good friend and super fan from Portland, Oregon, Casey McBride. Thanks, Casey.